Please join me for a prayer of illumination. God, source of light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out on us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that our hearts and minds may be opened. Amen. Now hear these words from 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 28. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and listen to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. The word of the Lord. One of the most uh, famous unsent messages in world history was written by Dwight Eisenhower during World War II when he served as the supreme allied commander overseeing the forces battling Nazi Germany in Europe. Eisenhower had the overall responsibility for planning the massive D-Day invasion onto the beaches of Normandy, the, the largest seaborne invasion in history. And it's this invasion, of course, that led to the liberation of France and ultimately the Allied victory in Western Europe. 
But when it was being planned, uh, there were so many unknowns, and uh, it was an enormous risk, and no one knew if it would be successful. And for this reason, Eisenhower drafted a memo to be released if the D-Day invasion failed. Uh, the memo announced, our landings have failed, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the Navy did all that bravery and devotion could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. As we would expect from a great leader, Eisenhower gives any credit for victory to his troops, and he takes the blame for failure upon himself. In our text today, uh, King Saul does the opposite of Eisenhower. Saul takes the credit for victory for himself, and he lays the blame for any failures on his people. On the outside, Saul looked like an ideal leader. 1 Samuel chapter 9, uh, to say, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. It's very rare for Hebrew narrative to describe someone's appearance. So when it does, it's, it's significant. And here the Bible is telling us that Saul appears to be a natural-born leader. Not only did he look the part, but he comes from a wealthy family. He goes on to be a successful military leader with many successful battles against the Philistines. Uh, he was popular with the people. On the outside, he seemed to have everything you would want in a king. But as the story develops, Saul's character flaws uh, become more and more obvious. He looks good on the outside, but on the inside, he lacks integrity, and this leads to his downfall. So let's consider today what we can learn from Saul's character. Now, there are several details in this text that reveal the gap between Saul's performance on the outside and his inner attitude. The first hint we get is in verse 12, when Samuel is told that Saul had set up a monument for himself, a memorial for victory. Saul had been commanded earlier in this chapter by Samuel to go to war against the Amalekites. The Amalekites were ancient enemies of Israel. During the time of the Exodus, they were infamous for attacking the Israelites uh, when they had just barely left Egypt on their way uh, to Mount Sinai in Exodus 17. And for this reason, Moses had declared that there would be perpetual war between Amalek and Israel. And this is an important point for understanding why God would tell Saul to fight against the Amalekites and totally wipe them out. Uh, in every other nation in the ancient world and throughout history, kings had total and complete authority uh, to fight whomever they choose, whoever they chose, for their own purposes, usually uh, for the benefit of their nation, to gain more territory or slaves or, or other resources. 
The king claimed absolute authority to conduct war to benefit their empire. But in the, in the Bible, in the nation of Israel, the king had to answer to God and his prophets in a way that put a check on his power. When Saul is commanded by the prophet Samuel to go to war against the Amalekites, he is explicitly told not to keep any of the spoils of the battle for himself. None of the people can keep anything in order to make clear that this really wasn't about Saul and the growth of his nation, but about God and his judgment. The Israelites weren't allowed to benefit from it by plundering or by looting. They were called to fight, but not for an imperialistic purpose. And it shows us that this is a very odd and strange kind of war. After the battle then, when Saul sets up a monument for himself, this is a sign that something major has gone wrong in Saul's and making it his own. The second sign of a problem is how Saul blame shifts when confronted by the prophet. When Samuel arrives, he, Samuel says in one of the best lines of the Bible, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? In other words, if you've done what God commanded, why are these animals still here? Why have you kept these things? And Saul is, is quick to claim the victory in verse 13. And he says to Samuel, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But as soon as Samuel notices the animals, Saul becomes very vague. He says, they. Notice the vague, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen. But we're told back in verse 9 that Saul and the people spared the leader of the Amalekites and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. Basically, Saul and the people kept everything they wanted to keep and destroyed everything that they didn't want. They've spared the best of the spoil and made this fight just another imperialistic expansion to serve themselves and not the Lord. Saul takes no responsibility, and he only points his finger at the people under his command. Finally, when confronted, Saul gives a religious justification for his disobedience. In verse 19, Samuel asks, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul replies in verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Notice how Saul keeps insisting that he has obeyed. How he blames the people again, and then he tries to justify it all by giving a religious rationale for doing what they did. They want to make a sacrifice 
to the Lord with the looted animals. Doesn't this make it all okay? That God is rejected. And this is the last straw for Samuel. Samuel, and he, he declares that God has rejected Saul as king. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. God is not impressed with Saul's show of religiosity as if it made up for his lack of obedience. God is looking for a wholehearted commitment to following his ways, a man after his own heart. And what Saul has offered is a half-hearted obedience covered over with a smear of religious service. What should we take away from this story about Saul's character? We've seen his self-importance when he makes the victory about himself. We've seen his self-protection when he shifts the blame to the people for his disobedience. And we've seen his self-deception in the way that he keeps insisting that he's done right when he hasn't. Saul shows us how easy it is for someone who's very gifted to go down a path of self-centeredness and greed, even believing that he is serving God when he's really serving himself. If you're someone who has natural gifts or skills in some area, there's a lot that you can accomplish based on those gifts alone. You may build a successful business or write a great book or make some great new scientific discovery. But if you don't have character, if there's a gap between what you present on the outside and what is going on on the inside, then sooner or later, it will become clear that your success is a mirage, that you don't have the inner resources to sustain your outward efforts. And Saul shows us that the greatest danger of all is for religious believers who too often confuse their great sacrifices for God with their obedience to God. He can tell the difference between lip service and true devotion. As Jeff Harden reminded me this morning, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, one act of obedience is better than listening to a thousand sermons. Where does Saul's disobedience come from? Where does this gap come from between what we show on the outside? Question, let me on the inside. As we think about this question, let me offer an example, uh, not from the Bible, but from contemporary television. In our own day, one of the most celebrated characters in television history is Walter White from the show Breaking Bad. Uh, if you haven't seen the show, Walter White is a 50-year-old overqualified high school chemistry teacher who has a son with cerebral palsy and a baby on the way. And in the first episode of the show, you learn that Walter has been diagnosed with lung cancer, and he decides that he must come up with a way to earn extra money for his family before he dies. And so as the viewer, you have a lot of sympathy for his situation. But then he does something surprising. Instead of getting a job at Target or at the local grocery store, 
he uses his knowledge of chemistry to pursue the much more lucrative position of manufacturing methamphetamine. Walter's cancer treatment continues, but as the show goes on, we discover that Walter White has a deeper problem than the cancer cells multiplying in his body. He has a cancer of the soul, a moral cancer that infects all his decision-making. He crosses line after line of inhumane behavior to achieve what he wants, making as much money as possible. In this, he surprises even himself. And when his family discovers who Walter has become, they're horrified. How could this have happened? And Walter initially justifies his behavior by his love for his family, by his need to provide for them. He's doing it all for them. But as the show goes on, we learn that other things are driving him under the surface. There's his pride in his chemistry skills that make him absolutely brilliant at making meth. There's his envy at what others have that he thinks that he deserves. But in the final episode, when asked to explain his behavior, Walter simply says this, I did it for me. I liked it. I was good at it. And I was really, I was alive. Walter White shows us that when we find a gap in our own character or in the character of others, that what we see on the outside is in the heart. And we find the same thing in the story of Saul. After hearing that God has rejected him as king, Saul appears to repent. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He is sorry, but his words reveal that there is still more going on under the surface than he has confessed. First, nowhere does this story describe the people as demanding anything of Saul. In fact, the opposite is true. Saul is described as the one who takes the initiative, and the people join him in the plunder. He's still blame-shifting. And second, while he's confessing his sin, he's not going deep enough. He's confessing the obvious and outward way in which he transgressed, but he's still justifying himself based on his fear of the people. It's like he's saying, yes, I did wrong, but I didn't have any other choice. They made me do it. Saul looks a lot like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Uh, when God comes to him and he asks if he ate from the tree of knowledge and Adam points to Eve, the woman gave it to me. Even though Saul confesses to some obvious wrongs, underneath his outward and obvious sin, there remains a deeper sin, a self-centeredness and a self-justification. He wants what he wants. And everyone else, including God, are objects for his manipulation and his negotiation. Saul doesn't really ever worship the Lord. He likes what he can get from God, but he doesn't want 
God himself and the wholehearted obedience that worshiping him would require. I did it for me. I liked it. When you begin to look at your life in, in this kind of way, and to see that underneath your outward and obvious sins is a self-centeredness and a self-justification, then change just might become possible. Obviously, there, there are many ways that we're not like King Saul or Walter White, but we all hide like them. We hide our motivations, our intentions, our desires from others and from ourselves. We, miss, we say we are doing one thing when we really we're doing another. We mislead. We make good things into ultimate things. And sometimes, in a moment of clarity, after years or decades of little incremental decisions, we look at ourselves and we say, how did I become this person? What has happened to me? But too often, then we go back into hiding. One of the great gifts of the Bible is that it gives us language to describe our navigation through this moral reality. The language of sin and pride and idolatry often sounds to us today old-fashioned, but without it, we're unable to describe what it means to be fully human. David Brooks in his book, The Road to Character, says this. Sin is a necessary piece of our mental furniture because it reminds us that life is a moral affair. No matter how hard we try to reduce everything to deterministic brain chemistry, no matter how hard we try to reduce behavior to the sort of herd instinct that is captured in big data, no matter how we strive to replace sin with non-moral words like mistake or error or weakness, the most essential parts of life are matters of individual responsibility and moral choice, whether to be brave or cowardly, honest or deceitful, compassionate or callous, faithful or disloyal. When modern culture tries to replace sin with ideas like error or insensitivity, or tries to banish words like virtue, character, evil, and vice altogether, that doesn't make life any less moral. It just means we have obscured the inescapable moral core of life with shallow language. It just means we think and talk about these choices less clearly. And so the Bible blind to the moral stakes of everyday life. So the Bible gives us language to describe our experience, but it does more than this. It invites us to believe that the creator of this reality is a part of the drama. God is engaged with, in the story with us, sometimes in ways that are disturbing or, or challenging, but always moving towards a future in which human beings reflect his good purposes for the world. In this drama, Saul represents all the ways in which we so often turn in on ourselves, how pride makes us blind, how we misuse our power to hurt others, and how we fail to listen to God and to each other. Saul's ultimate failing is that he's not willing to humble himself under 
God's authority. He has a kind of false humility. He's little in his own eyes, as Samuel says, but really his fear of the people and his anger at Samuel drive him always to do what he thinks is right and what will get him what he wants. Part of the point of the story of Saul is to make clear that God's people don't just need any king, they need a humble king. They need one who will fight for them against their enemies with courage and strength, and at the same time be willing to follow God in obedient love. We'll begin to see a king like this in David next week, but as we will come to see, David always points beyond himself to the true and better king. In the person and work of Jesus, we discover a humble king who has all power and authority, but who makes himself weak and lowly in obedience to his father. Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Saul's obedience in 1 Samuel represented God's judgment on sinners, but Christ's obedience represents God's salvation for sinners. His obedience meant taking up his cross and sacrificing himself in love for others. There is still a horrible judgment, but he takes that. He reveals on himself in suffering self-sacrificial love. He reveals that the ultimate battle to which all the battles of the Old Testament point is the battle to destroy sin and death forever, and that ultimately, God himself is the hero who will rescue his people. The gospel tells us that God has won this battle once and for all through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now we're invited to make him our humble king. We do this when we confess that we need mercy and grace, not just for what we say and do on the outside, but for all the ways in which we seek to justify ourselves. God sees us all as we really are with our weaknesses and our failings, but he does not turn away. As Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we pray today for the courage to confess that we are not the people we aspire to be or that we claim to be. We hide from you, from one another, and even from ourselves. We ask you today to tear off the masks under which we hide and to make us bold in coming to you as we really are in all our need for your grace 
and then to go to one another as agents of your love. As we come to the Lord's table today, we ask you to remind us that you are with us and that you love us always, even in our weakness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.